0: Imagine an art installation composed of 400 casts of vulvas, a sea of white plaster labias that stretched across an entire wall, an installation that's intended to be provocative and beautiful, but also with the intention of celebrating genital diversity and as a powerful antidote to genital anxiety. Today, I am talking with the artist behind the Great Wall of Vulva. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized women's health expert. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices, and I'm here to give you the inside information. It's not new for an artist to depict the naked body. Walk through any art museum, and there's no shortage of butts, breasts, and depending on the era, genitalia peeking off from behind a fig leaf. But 400 vulvas cast directly from human models? Regular people who've chosen to assume a position usually reserved for the gynecologist? I don't know about you, but I have questions. Lots of questions, which is why I'm delighted to have Jamie McCartney as my guest today. Jamie McCartney is a multi-award winning professional artist based in the UK, working largely in sculpture and experimental photography. His work is seen all over the world and Jamie is frequently called upon to discuss the power of art as a tool for social change. Welcome, Jamie.
1: What a great intro. I didn't know I was so interesting. You
0: are actually very interesting. And I do have a lot of of questions, starting with the obvious one. What prompted you to start casting Vulvas?
1: Curiosity, I think, is the honest answer. You know, um, and it all started just with uh, with partners, you know, uh, messing about. So it didn't really become something, you know, a sort of significant artwork idea until um, until I'd cast a few people and then started going, whoa, this is interesting. Sort of people found out I was doing this, then started asking me to cast their genitals. And I have to say, this is not why I went to art school. So it's a bit of a surprise. But, you know, and then, yes, so there were there were penises, there were vulvas, there was anything people wanted, really.
0: So what I want to do is I want to focus first on just the process and the experience and all that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the impact, the social impact of of, of your work. You know, I mentioned in, in my introduction, your models, they they weren't actresses. I mean, these were not art models that are used to taking off their clothes to be painted or photographed. These were just like regular strangers who agreed not only to get naked in front of a stranger, but to have that stranger lay his hands Directly on their vulvas. So, can you talk a little bit about how you recruited these models, how you found them, and how you got them to agree to do this?
1: Yeah, I have to say, you know, to begin with, it it wasn't easy. You know, when I started this project, I was uh, relatively unknown. So, I just asked everybody with a vulva, and most people said, uh, Are you crazy? Wait, wait, wait,
0: wait. Go, but wait. You asked everyone with the Volvo, like at, at cocktail parties out on the street, you went to the grocery store, you just walked up to Strange Women and said, hey, <laughs> I'm an artist. You want to come to my studio, take off all your clothes so oh, I it's can cast a... <laughs> your Volvo?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I had a sculpture studio, so I was you know, legitimized at least that I could say this is what I do for a living. But I would ask people in social situations. I asked all my friends, you know, most of them remain my friends. But to to begin with, it was difficult. And, you know, I I sort of thought, okay, where am I going to find people? And I thought, well, maybe I'll go to fetish clubs and find people there because these are people who are quite happy to take their their clothes off in, in public. And not just their clothes, but also this is really genital focused. So I have to say, it didn't take long for sort of word to get out and for people to start contacting me asking to be part of the project. So it, it was a, uh, it kind of snowballed and gained its own momentum after a short while.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's interesting that you started off having to basically talk women into it. And then suddenly they're, you know, saying, hey, I want to be part of the project. I frequently talk about how women are very self critical when it comes to their bodies in general. But, you know, particularly when it comes to their genitals. And it's gotten much worse since pubic hair removal has become the fashion and people can really see what what's going on. And you mentioned that when casting, a lot of your models expressed dissatisfaction with the appearance of their genitals, you know, that their labia were too long or their clitters was too small or too big. So talk about that, how that came up. Did did they bring it up? Did you ask? How did you learn that there was this genital shame, if you will?
1: Yeah, that, I mean, it's interesting. In fact, what what happened was I was working on a piece uh, for a sex education museum, which uh, used to exist in London, and it was a wall of genitals. And that's kind of how this started, really, was working on that piece. The women coming to be cast were seeing the cast of, of the other women who'd come before them, and they'd say things like, oh, I wish mine looked like that one. And I'd be like, "Why? <laughs> what's so good about that one? And they would say things like, oh, it doesn't have any frilly bits or whatever, and I was just like, well, what do you mean? I had no idea that some women suffered from genital anxiety. I understood that men did, you know, as a as a penis owner. I've been through that curve myself and with my friends, you know. So, but I had no concept that women worried about their genitals. You, so you just assumed
0: that, that all women love their genitals, which is interesting I, well, because by your own admission, men also somewhat self-critical, self-crit- and yet it surprised I, you that women had some insecurity about their genitals
1: it's it had never been expressed to me so i just wasn't maybe maybe I, it's just ignorance isn't it until someone tells you something you you just don't know it's 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 true of everything and then you know because i'm kind of a socio-political artist when i find something that i find is interesting when i think hmm okay that's interesting let me find out more about this i started realize i started doing some research and discovered that labiaplasty Surgeries were the fastest growing cosmetic surgery in the UK. And I was just like, well, that's interesting. In fact, the NHS, the health service, stopped doing them because people were coming for cosmetic reasons rather than just for medical reasons.
0: And very young women also, teenagers, ask. Because in the States, of course, we have the same issue.
1: Yeah, increasingly young, you know, teenagers. And sort of, so I thought, well, I, I, where is this idea coming from that somehow? Women are believing that they're defective down there and need and need to be fixed. It's not my opinion. A lot of what we do with our bodies, whether it's hair, makeup, nails, clothes, and then moving on to surgeries, tattoos, body modifications in various ways, it often comes down to the same thing, which is that we want to look as good as we can because we want to be attractive in whatever way that means. And I think it really comes down to we want to be loved. And so I was just like, what? you're, you're going to see a surgeon because you want to be loved. and like, that, that just doesn't make sense to me. It's like, I don't, it doesn't make any difference to me. What your genitals look like. It doesn't affect my the way that I'm attracted to a person. So I was confused and I wanted to drill into it. And that's kind of how this started.
0: A few years ago, I did a survey of men and it was called biggest bedroom deal breakers. And it was multiple choice. And one of the questions I asked was, do you think that your partner's labia are too long? And the choices were, yes, I think they're too long. No, I think they're just right. The third choice was labia. What's a labia? And the fourth choice was, I don't care. I'm just happy to be invited to the party. And the number one answer was, I'm just happy to be invited to the party. And I think that says it all right there. What what you have expressed and what what you've discovered that for men, most of them don't know and don't care, but it, it has to do with self-esteem and this perception that they're not going to be sexually attractive or loved unless there's a certain appearance to the labia. But I want to get back to when you're actually casting the women. This came up as part of the discussion, right? So did they bring it up spontaneously or did you ask? How do you feel about, about your labia? How do you feel about your external genitalia?
1: No, I, I would never uh, bring it up. I what was really important is, you know, people coming into a an artist studio, they by and large didn't know me. They came with their friends or partners or often they came on their own. So it was really important that, you know, they needed to trust me and sort of almost like me. And so, uh, you know, in those first few minutes of, of, of conversation, we're basically sort of finding out about each other. Is, am I safe with this person? Is this something I should I was, be I doing? was going
0: to say, I mean, you know, you're this cute young artist. And <laughs> I don't know if you had an assistant or if you're alone in the studio. But it's, you know, could be a little frightening for someone as far as it being
1: a safe space. Well, exactly. So it was very important to make it a safe space. And there was a very clear... Model release that they had to sign so they could be very aware what was going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time we got into the studio, uh, people had already spent some time with me and were like confident because at any point they could say, No, I don't want to do this. Right. You know, but they're confident that, how, that this, how
0: often did that happen? Did that happen that someone type would change their mind or not too often?
1: never happened. In fact, what well, more often <laughs> than not, the people that they brought with them that weren't intending to get cast decided to do it as well. Oh, that's so funny. Um, I mean, one person took about half an hour to open her legs she was re- she had like leg locks she was so anxious.
0: welcome to my life as gynecologist mm-hmm. we, we certainly experienced this a lot of that is not just the situation but people who've had past history of trauma so so these women would come in and, and you would have this discussion and you would cast but yet a number of them did express dissatisfaction with the appearance of their genitals right
1: It was very important that I never said anything or made any kind of comments because one comment out of place could lead to a lifetime of anxiety if they wanted to broach the subject, you know, and occasionally people, you know, people would sort of preempt it like saying, Oh, you know, I'm so huge down there or or whatever it was kind of, I think wanting reassurance and wanting a response by and large, everyone who thought they had massive labia had either average or smaller than average labia <laughs> in my yeah. experience. And I would sort of say, well, you know, from what I've seen, you, you do appear to be right in the middle of of what's normal and And, you know, because there were hundreds of casts or whatever, how many I did already, I'd sort of pull back a curtain and go, look, this this is what people look like. So already the people who were coming to be cast were getting a direct education in the way that visitors now to the museum can get the same sort of education. But I think for the people who actually got cast, it's a really profound experience.
0: And do you think that some women appeared to be cast because they were feeling anxiety about their genitalia?
1: I do believe that a lot of it was a way of getting over anxiety uh, about their genitals. I think, I mean, number one, I kind of intuited that sometimes. Sometimes they said that to me, but also in, in my own experience, uh, modeling nude for other artists was also, if you like a, a way of challenging myself to to get completely naked in front of a a stranger and see what that feels like. And my experience was that having done it after a few seconds, you're like, well, that happened, you know, it just it and it just changes that anxiety forever. And I think that's what happened for a lot of these people. And maybe they kind of thought that might that might happen. So, yeah, I think it was, it was therapeutic for, cert, for certain people to come along.
0: I, I can imagine. And I know you weren't casting penises as part of the project, but do you think men are as self-conscious and, and might have some of the same response to that kind of a project if you were doing penises instead of vulvas?
1: I have done a wall of penises. The piece that I did for the, uh, the Sex Museum in, in London was men and women. Uh, together. And you know, the difficulty, I mean the men also needed to be uh flaccid and erect. So they were arousal was part of their experience, which was another yeah. level. But I, I think the difficulty with that piece is that larger penises are overrepresented in that project. It's a self-selecting group. Uh men they're
0: proud men. of their penises. They want to show it yeah. to the world.
1: They wanted yeah. to get out their schlongs, you know, and and yeah. and so it was really it's really hard to get to get men who are kind of smaller than average to come and be cast. And it's been a, I've wanted to do more of these, but it's been a problem. And the last thing I want to do is produce work, which champions larger penises because they do exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to do with the work. So it's sort of a, it's a bit of a fail in that, in that regard. I mean,
0: obviously there's a lot of different motivations why a woman might choose to do this. One of them being to get past that, that self-shame, if you will. But for some women, do you think that it was um, an arousing experience, that they did it just because of the erotic factor behind it? And then if that was the case, how did you handle that?
1: Yeah, um, definitely. That was the case on occasions. Uh, I wasn't always aware that this was the case. <laughs> you know, I found out yeah. later um you know because i asked uh, all the women who participated to write about their experience in order to to do the book now, I did a
0: that's book. a book oh is that in the book i know that we're gonna yeah talk about yeah
1: there's so the more than oh, a oh, hundred stories of, of the women who participated and i was a bit shocked to read some of the motivations I, I, can you <laughs>
0: share one story now just as a teaser for some of the stories in the book
1: you know, people have just said, you know, I just came to get my jollies. I thought it would be exciting to get my genitals out, you know, and just it was literally just a, 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 a sexual uh, fantasy being uh, kind of lived out in my studio. You know, I'm no stranger to uh, to arousal. You know, arousal is not an invitation <laughs> in either direction. Yeah. You <laughs> right. know, and it was just important to separate, you know, that. Because that, arousal can, can, can be completely unintentional. Right. You know, we're not always, uh, you know, in, in control of that. So it's not like, um, you know, people would, would, were necessarily becoming aroused deliberately, although I, I definitely, or that say. they'd
0: anticipated that they would be aroused. They might have been surprised by the fact that they found it to be. An arousing, exciting, sexually exciting experience, even though that was not the intent.
1: No, and and the workshop is not the sexiest place. Let me tell you. So
0: (laughs) I know. Well, we're we're going to talk about the process, the the bright lights and the plaster and all that. But you know, but before we get to that, as a gynecologist, obviously I've seen thousands of vulvas in my lifetime. Yet when I saw the wall for the first time, I was I was struck just by the beauty of of the work. And and photos don't do it justice. You kind of need to be really have the the in person impact. But of course, and I mentioned this to you when, when we met, as a gynecologist, I immediately started picking out which vulvas had obstetric tears, which were clearly postmenopause, which was specific gynecologic conditions. Part of the beauty of this work is the incredible range of vulvas that were included. I mean, it wasn't like you were casting porn actresses with a very specific look, you know, the perception of what an attractive vulva is. So talk about the range of your models in terms of who they were, their age range, all of that.
1: Age range is... Um- 18 to 76. I wanted to make it as broad as possible. Uh, There was no selection process, you know, as long as you were over age and you were able to get to the studio, uh, then you were invited. When Once more and more people found out about this, people with particular gynecological uh, problems who felt that it would be important to be representative of that condition sort of came deliberately because they thought that that should be included. So I didn't really seek out anything in particular, because you have to understand, I didn't know that much about women's genitals when I started this project.
0: (laughs) Most men do not. Most women don't, for that matter, quite frankly. We're going to talk about (laughs) the education value, yeah.
1: I mean, I know I liked them, but that was as far as it went, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it was like, it was an education uh, for me. And when I realized that there was, you know, a lot, of very personal reasons why like people that might want to participate there had, I mean, there was and sclerosis, uh, there was, uh, radical, uh, well, vector
0: treatments, radiation treatments. I mean, I saw it all on the wall, right. you know, for me, it was like a little bit of a, a gynecologic textbook and, uh, <laughs>
1: well, there you go. I mean, that's great. I mean, it's great that it's kind of, that it has that as well for people who are as experienced professionals as you are, that it's still kind of interesting in that way. Yeah. but I, I think it was uh, really because it was a self selecting group. A lot of people came deliberately because they felt that it was a condition they wanted to to highlight to other people
0: before we get to the impact, I, I do want to talk about just the specific process because I know people will be curious, and of course, on your website the dot com you you have photos of of the process. But could you just describe what would happen? When after she signed the release and you talked to the woman and all of that, and then she would essentially assume the position that one would for a gynecologic exam. So what happened after that? What would you do?
1: Basically, they would um, get onto what we, you know, hilariously called the casting couch, and they would. Uh, yeah, I love that the casting
0: couch. And you had a, You had a, um, a background in film, also, didn't you?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah I worked yeah. in the film industry for years. Yeah, so Yeah. Kind of. That was kind of the joke. Later iterations of the couch, I actually put a mirror on the ceiling and an angled mirror, so they, from their position, they could see exactly what I was doing, and sort of see their own vulva as well, just kind of pretty, uh, pretty clearly. That the angle of the mirror was deliberate. So. Uh, it helped did you? Was
0: that something them. you thought of, or did a woman suggest it? Because we do that in the office. We give women mirrors, and they're very often like surprised and a little bit put off because women, you know, guys can see their penis easily, but of course, women can't see their own vulvas. So I think that was brilliant. But um, did you come up with that yourself, or did a woman suggest it?
1: Yeah, it was. It was. It was suggested. So I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll, that's a good idea. I'll take that one. You know, so yeah. now I can't claim credit for everything, much as I like to. <laughs> well. um, so people would come, and they, you know, they basically assume the sort of frog position. They were able. I mean, you have to di- realize I was dealing with people with lots of different abilities. You know, someone like one of the uh, the older people uh, needed help getting up onto the couch, and certainly couldn't really open her legs very wide. So, get basically to try, try to get a consistent position. I think was important, and then I would mix up my stuff. Now, I, what I use to make the mold is the same stuff dentists use to make a mold inside of your mouth. It's a standard body casting material called alginate, and it's, it's sort of a seaweed based compound. So you mix that with water and it forms a sort of a blue goo. Uh, and then that literally needs to be manually applied to, to the vulva. And this is where the hair situation is becomes interesting. You know, and people have commented that, Hey, there's no hair on, visible on yeah
0: on I noticed hair. that I, I I commented that when I saw it. it's like where'd the hair go?
1: Yeah so it you can't really cast hair. If you tried to cast my face, I would just be stuck in the mold. <laughs> just because of the hair. Well, pe- well
0: this is a podcast so people can't see your face but you have right, a okay. beard and a mustache. <laughs> a beard.
1: Sorry. Yeah. yeah so I haven't quite a pronounced beard and it would just get you know so I would have to, if I were going to cast my face or any hair, it needs to be flattened down smooth so that, that the hair doesn't lift up and get trapped in the mold. So um, any any hair would be smoothed down first with Nivea. And in fact, out of the 400 casts in the wall, 80 of them have visible hair, but you have to go up close to, uh, to see it. So we'd kind of prepare, put this Nivea on that acts as a mold release and then literally smear on the blue goo. Which sets in about two minutes, uh, and on top of that is a layer of plaster bandage, like uh, people might use to—you know—they used to use it for setting broken bones. The same stuff, plaster of Paris. And that sets in another few minutes, and the whole thing comes off together. And that's the mold. At that point, the woman is liberated from the experience, and I have to go and—that's when the work begins, really, is going off to make the cast from the mold, and then all the processes it took to get to being part of the wall.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating process. I, I want to talk about the impact of your work, first starting from an educational point of view. And it was also a bit of an education for you, as as you mentioned. And originally, uh, it was called the the Great Wall of Vagina, not the Great Wall of Vulva. So talk about your personal education and when that change came about.
1: For, for a long time, the, the artwork had a working title, Design uh, Vagina, three words based on, there was a pun on designer vaginas, which is what the labiaplasties used to be referred to. Right, You know, back then, vagina was common parlance for the whole genital area. And I think by and large still is. In it still people. is. Absolutely. So That's a big problem. It. So that basically, and I didn't, I, I, it wasn't a strong enough title. So eventually I kind of started asking people, come on, what, what should this thing be called? And there was actually a woman who came up with the idea uh, of calling it the Great Wall of, uh, of Vagina, which is, I, I like the pun. I think sometimes when you're presenting quite challenging work, using, using humor mm-hmm. is a great way of getting past people's natural defenses. It's like you can, they kind of, it makes it okay for them to look at it if it's, if it's got a funny title. So I think that was very important. It, one of the real difficulties is not only was it anatomically incorrect, it doesn't translate across different languages. Puns don't really work outside of your, your own language. And so a lot of people just didn't get it at all. So in, in many ways, it sort of failed as a title. I had to sort of accept that. But what it, what it did do, I think one of the things is because vagina is or was common parlance and is, and because in some languages, you know, it's vagine, vagina, you know, it's like, it does translate in, in, in across many languages, even though the humor, humorous pun in the title doesn't. So it worked well, it gained a lot of attention, but as it became more and more popular, more and more people kind of were resistant to it. And I think particularly educators, it's difficult for educators to use it in their work when it's got the wrong name, shall we say. For what, what, what year
0: was it that the project launched? When was it first shown publicly? And then when did you change from vagina to vulva? Just to give us some context here.
1: So I started casting in 2006. It it went on and became, went into, was on television by 2008 and was finished production and was first shown in 2011. So a long time. Um, and the name, the title changed, uh, in last year, end of last year. So, so that was very
0: recent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was very recent. You know, really, I I would say it's only really in the last couple of years that that there's a sort of real groundswell of, a vulva being used much more, more commonly. And I sort of felt when it moved up to a permanent show at the museum, it was time to, to make that change. It's hard to change the title of an artwork. I bet, you know, you, yeah. you are, if you like uh, shooting yourself in the foot to some extent, because you are going to lose, you know, some audience who are looking for one thing and can't find it now. So, and it presented some challenges, but I, I felt that it was important to be flexible to listen to what people have said to me and, and take that on board and, and let's go ahead and do it.
0: Yeah, And from an education point of view, I mean, you, you're you out there in the world talking about this to educate people about female genitalia, what's what's normal and what's not, which is a role I've kind of taken on for myself. Um, it's not something that I ever pictured an, an artist doing, which had to be kind of unusual for you, I would imagine, when you first started to to fill that educator role.
1: I, I, I want the work. To, to be, if you like, the educator rather than, than me. I think it would be foolish for me to think that I really have much to contribute beyond the actual visuals of the work itself. Yeah. And so I've, I've allowed it to be a kind of open source thing. I don't, I, I, anyone can, can view it online. It's free. It's available. If educators want, want to use images of it, then I make it free. I only charge the use of images if it's a, uh, you know, a commercial venture. So I've kind of tried to make it as as basically available to everyone as possible and that and hope that the work kind of does does the educating for me. I mean, like I say, I mean my socio-political work is a, it's kind of a big thing that I do, and a lot of that is about educating. Or is it just about me stating my opinions and hoping someone will listen? I mean, that is that is one of the problems. But, but uh, that's, uh, but that's
0: what artists do is well, you know, exactly. that's, that's what makes you an artist as opposed to being just an educator and on your website, I think one of the quotes you had on there, which I liked was about if something is written, people can stop reading it. One of the power of visual art is you can't unsee something. If someone looks at it, that's going to have an impact. You, you can't make it necessarily go away that, that vision. And I think that that is. One of the very powerful things about art in general, not just not just your work. I'd like to talk also, and we talk about the positive impact your, your work has had, also just in terms of individual self-esteem, if you will, in terms of, you mentioned that there are women who felt self-conscious about their genitalia, but I, I have the impression that um, from a sociopolitical point of view, that your work has had a real impact in terms of women feeling more positive uh, about what's normal in terms of genitalia.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? It's it's like, to some extent, to to even want to know what's normal or what other women look like, you have to have already had a reason to be curious. You know, it's not, I think, and a lot yeah. of people that I speak to have said, no, it's never crossed my mind. They've not had a reason uh, to be curious. So it, it tends to be the people who have some kind of anxiety that are doing the Google searches, mm-hmm. that, is, that is, you know, looking for what, normal down yeah. there or whatever, we're going to come across the word,
0: But you you mentioned that there were women that, that were cast because they were planning on having surgery. They were planning on having a labioplasty and that the experience actually changed their mind. I mean, that's pretty powerful when you think in terms of the impact. Is that something that, that came up often or was it just an occasional
1: thing? I mean, obviously, I, I, I wouldn't know how many people might but I know particularly of a few people who, who did who came to get cast. Well, I guess it?
0: what I'm actually saying is is what I'm asking isn't so much did they change their mind about having surgery, but did women walk out feeling better about their about their external genitalia, feeling better about their labia?
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent. You know, I because I get I get the emails, I get the if I'm at my exhibition, I get the thanks, I get and the tears, you know, it's it's a really powerful thing just to put a show on. I mean it's been shown Quite a few times now, and I've always been present uh, for for long periods of that. And to see people come in and leave in tears shows that this is a really profound experience for a a lot of people. But you're talking
0: about people who are modeling or people who went and saw the
1: work? or We went and saw the work. We went and saw the work, work. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and people that modeled, I mean, they certainly were telling me what a profound experience. Because if they stuck around and waited for me to finish the cast, or if I sent them a photograph of the cast, they're often st- astonished because it wasn't what they were expecting to see, and I, I bet it was
0: reflected in the stories that people wrote after. I'm really curious to Ooh. to get the book and and read those stories. You know, all right. So we've been talking about the the, the positive reactions, the positive impact, but I have to imagine that uh, there's been some bumps in the road here. You know, that you've had some negative reactions or maybe censorship, some pushback, not just about the work itself, but I mean, face it, you're you're a guy, so. Were there women who objected to the fact that the artist behind this work was not a vulva owner?
1: It's interesting, you know. I think that when I started the project, term the male gaze, if you like, was not really was not really popular. Shall we say the the sort of idea that some that there was something negative about you know men being involved in this kind of work. So I didn't. Uh, have any concept that I was doing something that would upset people, you know, down the pipe. And and if you like, as the work has become more popular, uh, it started to draw fire from certain uh, people or certain sectors of people who felt that this wasn't my area and that maybe I should stay in my lane. And you know, I and, and you get I get comments on my social media saying I like this until I found out a dude did it. And I'm just like, you know, it's, I, for me, I just find that ridiculous. I get it, but I also think that, you know, we have to be a bit bigger than that. It's like it's about the work, and it's like, I mean, I, I would but get can, it. If but they,
0: can you ever, but can you ever separate the work from the artist? I mean, that's, I, I remember. Um, years ago, when I was first introduced to modern art, and my father, who was a big lover of art, and we went to the art museum every week as a kid. And he always looked at the old, the great masters, right? And the first time someone showed him a picture, but it was, you know, basically a blank canvas with a dot in the middle of it. And my, you know, dad said the equivalent of, "This isn't art. This is, you know, piece of shit." The person who introduced it said, "No, you don't understand. It's it's about the artist and the intent and what the artist was thinking." So, you know, that was kind of my introduction to art is not just what you see on the canvas or the sculpture, but the intention and the person behind it, do you agree with that? Or you think the work just speaks for itself?
1: I think it's never one or the other. I think, and I think it, it's a sliding scale. You know, I mean, this work is, is deliberately working to be education. And I think, you know, when, when you consider that I'm only one person and there was 400 other people involved, I feel like in some ways I'm just a facilitator of this project. You know, the originator. But in fact, it was the 400 women, w- women volunteers who endorsed uh, the work with their bodies, who are the real sort of creators of this work. Yeah. And so in that regard, I think really this has been made by 400 women. And I think that that is something that people don't tend to consider when they're, they're getting. You know, yeah, the I matter. love that.
0: That like makes more. that makes such good sense, you know, that it's really, you facilitated them expressing themselves.
1: Yeah, I had the idea, but I needed, it was a collaborative work. I couldn't have done it without them, you know.
0: That's true. That would have been difficult. Were you ever censored or picketed or anything like that?
1: I'm banned from Japan, apparently. Wow.
0: <laughs> How did that happen?
1: <laughs> so, uh, back in 2013, when the work was on show in a museum in Italy, a Japanese um Gallery owner got in touch and said that they wanted to show it next. And that sounded fun. I've always wanted to go to Japan. I was very excited. The next thing I know is like the Tokyo police have branded the work obscene and have threatened us with arrest. And you would be threatened with arrest if you showed this. And so we can't do the show and getting arrested in Japan is a pretty serious thing. Sort of culturally, if you've been arrested, you're basically guilty. Otherwise it's saying that the police are rubbish so you're going to get you're going to be found guilty if you're arrested most of the time so nobody wanted to take the risk basically whereas you know over here we're like I, I got arrested as a as a you know as a as an agitator but it doesn't really do much do you much harm you know so but yeah so that's a real shame so apparently uh and i have actually uh, recently you know 10 years later would tried to Revisit the concept of showing it in Japan, and still nobody's willing. In fact, some people said that even more conservative than it was. You well,
0: know, no, that then. that doesn't surprise me. You know, a, a quote on your website states, "Our society would benefit from a more enlightened attitude towards our sexual bodies, and artists have a critical voice in that conversation." Viva la volvolution. So, <laughs> talk about about that. That those are your words, and and what how. What you've done is different from other artists before you because, you know, other artists have depicted female nudes. So what's different about your work?
1: You know, that, that phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. You know, visual arts have uh, another way of, of shining a lens onto a particular subject. You're looking at it through that, the lens of that particular artist. And it, it, it's a very fast way of gaining information, you know, visual information so uh out and also we kind of visual artists and artists tend to work a little bit outside of sort of traditional areas where you know you have to have you know professional oversight or you you have uh funding bodies that you need to satisfy with your research, et cetera et cetera. you know we don't have that, so that we we got no. It's a political pull or influence that means that we can speak in a very different and direct way, or yeah. as other educators might have more difficulties in that way. So that's why I think visual arts have a re- significant role to play in just about anything sociopolitical, really. The work itself is able to present itself.
0: You know, and and just the fact that you've been banned from a country, I think, says it all right there. You sell do-it-yourself kits which <laughs> on your website, which, of course, is a great gift for the woman who has everything. I'm kind of curious. Do you, do you sell a lot of them, and are these kits usually bought by women for themselves or by their partners? Do you know anything about the women that are ordering these kits?
1: Uh I, I, don't, I don't know a lot. People occasionally write to me or they write in the comments, "This is a, you know a gift for my partner," or you know, but uh, I would say that it's a pretty even split, split between men and women that, that buy them. We sell them all over the world. I think you know one of the biggest places we sell them to is the USA. Um, we just get a lot of orders from there.
0: And where do people display them? I mean, do they put it in their living room wall? What do they do with it once they cast their vulva? People that well, buy reproductions of your work, where do they, do you know? Where do they put it?
1: I know sometimes I have a page on the website where you can upload images of your own cast. You can upload photos of your own vulva. So basically I've tried, you know, before with the Great Wall of Vulva, when I was making it, you had to be able to come to me. Now anyone can participate. And if you can take a mold of your own uh, folder and cast it and you can just put it up on the website yourself so that kind of makes it opens it up makes it more fun so people do participate in that so i find out kind of they, they say kind of what they were doing with it um i think you have to split it into two parts there's the doing of it and then there's the results of it so for a lot of people just doing it is an entertainment in itself you know, what the result. So they're not
0: necessarily are. going to display it. They just want to yeah. have the experience of casting their vulva and then they put it in a drawer and <laughs> take it out on occasion.
1: Yeah. I think it just could be some sort of a romantic, erotic play for, for couples. Sometimes I think if people are, are molding themselves because they're curious and they want to see, I mean, a photograph doesn't really tell you what a cast does, you know, but whether people are really making ornaments to uh, put up uh, in their houses, I, I don't think. Many of these things actually go on on public display. If they do get kept, they go in a drawer and get brought out at parties or whatever. You You
0: sell other wall related items on your site, you know, jigsaw puzzles and mugs and posters and coloring books and individual reproductions of parts of the wall. And sometimes, you know, I feel a little turned off by the commercialization of art and I'm not going to walk around with a Van Gogh umbrella necessarily, but but I have to say in in this case, I'm kind of pleased that you've normalized this celebration of all our variability and made it so accessible, I think everyone should have a great wall of Volva book on their coffee table, just saying, but I also think, yeah, yes, I mean, you deserve to make a living and you have to make money and and I you know celebrate that and support that. But I think it's also important to to point out that unlike a lot of other artists, your work is completely self-funded. You know, you're not getting grants from art institutions and government to do your
1: Volva art. That's right. Yeah, I it, you know, self the self-funding model is insane. I mean, it's not a great business move, but I don't think that it would have got made if I'd waited around to try to attract people into an idea, uh, funders to an idea that actually was very off the wall. I did seek funding from one organization. Uh, and they were very interested, but they said because you've already started it, we can't help you fund it. I'm like, ah. Eh. Oh, no, so the whole thing was self-funded. In the end, I sold shares in it before things like Kickstarter and you know those kind of things existed. I, I had the idea to, to to crowd fund part of it, so there were shareholders in the work. And should I ever sell it, they would all benefit massively. So in the end, I did, I ran out of money. I needed funds to get this thing made, and that's that's how it happened. So yeah, in relation to the The merchandising, it is a way of pouring back some of the cost of production. But I was very sensitive about it. I actually took a while before I decided to try to make money from it because I didn't feel good about it. I didn't want people to think that I just got them in to be cast to be some sort of commercial exercise for me. So it is a delicate thing when you're, you know, commercializing your work, particularly when You're talking about 400 people's bodies. So, you know. Well, and there's a difference
0: also between having your vulva as part of an art installation versus having a reproduction of your vulva sold to the general public. I would imagine some women are saying, wait a minute, you're selling my vulva and making money from my vulvas."
1: (laughs) Nobody has ever expressed any um, dissatisfaction or resistance. Or
0: demanded a share of the profits and saying, you know, I want to get, you know. 50% Fifty percent of every one of my vulvas is in someone else's <laughs> living
1: room. Can you imagine the administration itself? Would buy I it,
0: you know? can't. Well, you know, a lot imagine. of
1: the women are shareholders in the in the project. You know, everyone was invited to to become a shareholder if they wanted to. So, um, yeah, some of the the models will will benefit very well when it sells.
0: You know, one of the things I I forgot to ask you before, so I want to circle back to this. You had mentioned to me that at one point you did actually try and cast vaginas, you know, internal vaginas, as opposed to vulvas. Same, or just remind me, because I remember we had a conversation about this before, and I don't remember what you said about the vagina casts.
1: Well, it was, I mean, it's much more difficult. Um, but, and to begin with, it was, it was, you know, sort of, how am I going to go about this? I actually sought some, uh, I found a woman uh, researcher who was molding uh, vaginas internally in it, and i actually contacted them and they offered me some advice on how they went about it but for me what i was trying to do was not just cast the inside of the vagina but also the vulva as well so the whole thing is connected into one piece and i've been doing that successfully i cast them in glass it's a whole series called internal affairs you know i do love my puns mm-hmm. and uh yeah you, you you can see them uh you can see them on my personal website are they i don't think they're on the great wall of vulva Website.
0: No, I, we'll put all that in the program notes because I actually did not know that you had another website with your other works, which brings me to my next question. What, what's next? What's next for Jamie McCartney as far as projects and, and this very creative mind of yours? Where, where are you going?
1: So I, that's, you know, it's interesting. I and mean, one of the things about doing what I do, and a lot of the projects I work on are very long outcome projects. So some of them can take years, if not decades. So there's always lots of things that are next. So, I mean, for instance, I am trying to mold someone, a vulva from a woman from every country in the world. I think that would just be interesting conceptually. It's quite interesting, but also I'd love to meet someone from every country in the world, so that's fun for me. Every state in the USA is another one. But moving on from vulvas, I'm actually collecting sand or soil from every country in the world for a big project that I'm doing. Okay, no,
0: wait, wait, wait. Does this just give you an excuse to travel and then write it off as a business expense? Or? Of
1: course. I mean, course. you know, being, a life, being an artist is a lifestyle business. Don't let anyone fool you. You know, so, I, yes, I get to travel a lot. It's fantastic. But most of the time, people are actually sending me samples uh, through the mail. So I'm collecting that. That's not that.
0: nearly as much fun. I'm
1: just. It's not just nearly saying. as much fun. But I know I can't go to every country. And, you know, there's a carbon footprint to consider, you know. I'm starting to use the train a lot more in my travels. So you know, I
0: love the, taking trains. I'm—I yeah. used to have a terrible fear of flying. I've pretty much gotten over it, unless it's turbulent. But I took trains all the time, and I loved it. You know, you have a nice bottle of wine. You look out the window. You really feel like you're traveling. You're looking into people's backyards. It's—it's it's really a phenomenal experience that I think most people don't
1: take advantage of anymore. No, people. You know, I mean, I, I even like the old Amtrak. You know, I've been around, uh, and uh, I enjoy it. So, but yeah, so there's the one. Food really is, the
0: food is terrible. Let's just be honest. The Yeah, bring your own food. Bring your own food.
1: Bring your own food. Bring Get on the double decker train and just look out the window and enjoy yourself. Go, get, you know, especially wine country in California. Mm-hmm. That I think the one the one project that I'm trying to progress at the moment, which I don't, you're, you're listeners may find interesting, is it's a concept for a Holocaust memorial that I'm working on. And again, you know, I'm not Jewish. People might say stay in your lane. But if artists only ever made art about themselves, it would be pretty dull, right? You know, so. No,
0: I'm, I'm with you on that. You don't have to be Italian to make great Italian food.
1: There you, you go. Learn, you
0: can learn about other people's cultures and appreciate it and participate without it being your background.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up with surrogate parents who were Polish Jews. Uh, one of them's entire family was killed at Auschwitz. And so it's been a part of my experience and DNA, if you like, my whole life. And I really feel the pull to make this project. It's a really interesting concept. It involves um, molding and casting. It it has a lot of parallels to some of the other work that I've done. And uh, I'm sort of in that, you know, making the right connections funding stage of the project right now.
0: Yeah. What are you molding and casting
1: for the Holocaust project?
0: Oh, all right. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just have to wait on that one. Yeah. As you know, I'm on the Kinsey Institute Advisory Board, and that's when I met you. It was during this board meeting in Miami uh, when I saw the wall in the museum, and, and we had our conversation then. How long is the work going to be in Miami, and where is it going next?
1: So it's scheduled to be in Miami for three years from last December, so until December 2025, I believe. So it's going to be there for a long time.
0: So this is good news for people in the states to Miami, and I will put the exact location in in the program notes. Where is it going after that?
1: I have no plans for it or where it might go after that. Uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of hoping the museum will like would not, would want to retain it and it just become a permanent part of their collection. But that's uh, I guess that's for down the pipe. Once, uh, you know, maybe in a couple, you know, next year when they're thinking about we want to keep it? I think uh, it's certainly been a really interesting piece. For them to have or not, just judging from yeah. the feedback, people in Miami are loving it. And it's such a tourist destination, but it does open the doors for lots of people from lots of places to see yeah. it there. So I think it's a great location.
0: But when, when I saw the work, I, I was there as part of a board event, but I went back a couple of days later because um, I wanted to take my time and look at some of the other works in the museum. And so I had the experience of seeing the Great Wall of Volva with just people off the street basically. And just to stand there and watch them was fascinating. And people would kind of, you know, it's like kind of the first time someone walks into a store where they're selling vibrators and they look at everything but the vibrators and then finally work their way over. And it was the same kind of thing that people would look at, you know, turn around and look to see what was on the wall behind it when there wasn't really much of anything. And then they'd finally kind of get close and just to watch and watch people their reactions, and the amount of time they would spend. It wasn't like sometimes you see it in art installation, someone basically walks past it in 15 seconds. That doesn't happen. People spend a lot of time looking and and if they're there with someone talking about it, and the the impact was just huge, just being, being in the room and, and watching people's reactions. And that has to be very satisfying for you as the artist to observe that.
1: What's great for me is that people don't know that I'm necessarily the artist. So I can watch with impunity about, you know, seeing them in, in, get involved with the work. I mean, to paint a picture for people, it's, it's 26 feet long. You can't, yeah. it's a big thing. It takes a while so, to walk up. Well, that's dance. why,
0: that, well, that's why I mentioned, you know, you can see pictures of it and it doesn't do it justice. When you're standing there, it is a monumental, overwhelming, uh, work that you become immersed in. It's like the difference between being in a movie theater and then seeing that same movie on your TV screen. It's just not the same. Not
1: the same at all. And and interestingly enough, you know, there was a survey done that showed that people spend more time looking at the blurb next to the artwork than they do at the artwork, uh, generally speaking. So the fact that there's actually nothing written next to this work means you don't have a choice. You
0: You have to look at it. You
1: just look at it and try to get out of it whatever comes up. For you, and if, if you find it interesting, there's QR codes and you can, you know, delve into it. But I I sort of love the fact that you just come around the corner and there it is and you're confronted. And let's face it, it is, it is very confronting. Most of us outside of, you know, professionals like yourself, uh, are only familiar with looking at people's genitals in privacy. You know, it's not and something even
0: then, I mean, let's be honest, even when someone is looking um, at someone's genitals in privacy or privacy, as we say, <laughs> um, but privacy sounds so much better. Very often it's, it's dark and no one is really doing an inspection. And in fact, many people, their only way of knowing what female genitalia look like is to look at, at diagrams at cartoons, essentially, which it's not the same at all. So for many, many people, men and women, this is really the first time that they've had a very upfront look of of what genitalia looks like and what it really looks like, you know, in, in actual human beings. And that's, that's the beauty of it is that you do have this enormous, enormous variety, which is, you know, and, and as a gynecologist, you know, when I, when I asked you what you say to someone, when they say, oh, I think my labia are too long or this or that, well, well, certainly the, when I'm teaching medical students, I tell them that the two most important words to say when you're doing an examination of the woman's vulva is normal and healthy. You know, I basically, as I'm looking and I say, everything here is normal and healthy and people need to hear that. And and you have said that loudly and clearly, which is an enormous, enormous, not only sociopolitical statement, but a a huge service to women. So I I thank you for that. Um, Anything else you'd like to say before we sign off here?
1: Yeah, I have to say, you know, the The work has been transformative uh, for me. I didn't know what I didn't know until I started the work. And I think that's what's really important about it is that none of us do. And so by going through this experience myself, I created a, a resource of information which everyone else in the world who has access to the internet or can go there can now also go through that same experience of discovering what they don't know. And even what you think you know probably isn't what you know about vulvas because most people have and never will see 400 next to each other for comparison. And you are correct
0: thing. on that. If you are not a gynecologist, most people will not have the opportunity to see 400 next to each other. Well, thank you so much for, for spending this time. And I will put all this information in the program notes. And I encourage everyone not only to go to the website, um, but if you're in Miami too, it is, it is absolutely worth the trip to go and, and see this in person. And thank you. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of.
1: I feel blue She helped me see the light Now I'm sleeping through the night
0: I find